Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. You're a host from the Internet Law Center, and we're in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. And our guest today is Adam Winkler, who's a UCLA law professor and the author of several notable books, including his latest, We the Corporations. And we're going to be talking about that with him in a minute. Um, but I want to give you a little background on Adam. And um, so... In law school, I had a professor, um, Webster, who worked with a distinguished criminal law firm in uh, Washington, D.C., Williamson Connolly. And he was involved in one of the very first battered wife syndrome cases. And I remember him, his presentation in, in the classroom. He was so dynamic and engaging. He actually rolled down the stairs of the auditorium to, to demonstrate the effect of what uh, was going on in that case. And he was such a dynamic speaker that his friend, Roland Joffe, the film director, almost cast him in the lead of a movie uh, about the making of the atomic bomb. And while he was disappointed he did not get the role, he loved to mention that the role did go to Paul Newman. So a, a nice consolation prize. But I, I mentioned that story because Professor Winkler is along that tradition. He's a very vivid storyteller, and I, I have seen him speak a number of times, and, and I still remember many aspects of, of what he said you know, years later. In fact, you know, I'm going to call upon him to um, speak about one of his earlier books later in the show. But uh, that is the type of person we have with us today. So I'm very thrilled um, to welcome Professor Adam Winkler. Are you, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Bennett. 
And I, I feel that it is my duty, um, since you do have one of the best opening punchlines in L.A., um, and since you're the dedication in your book is to Margot and Erwin Winkler. Um, what was it like being a lawyer in the Winkler family? <laughs> well, um, Erwin Winkler, my father, is a movie producer and a director and has made, I don't know, almost 70 movies, I think. He's still uh, in production on a few right now as we speak. Um, and uh, I have two older brothers, and they both followed my father's footsteps into the film business. So, uh, I was the black sheep in the family. And uh, I tell you, Bennett, there's not a lot of Jewish families where the kid goes to law school and he's the black sheep. So, I, I had to let you say that. That's a, I think it's a great punchline. But <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Adam is a professor of law at UCLA and teaches constitutional law. And he's had uh, one other bestseller, um, Gunfight, uh, on the history of the um, – the gun rights movement and you know the case law there and how that is treated under the law, and um, and so his new book is We the Corporations and I've actually seen him speak on this both while he was writing it during during the gestation phase and just recently at an an actual bookstore they still exist and we're in as much to our uh, our surprise and and thankfully so um, so um, tell us about. We the corporations. What 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 led you to write this book? Well, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, in 2010, the Supreme Court, in the Citizens United case, held that corporations had the same free speech right as individuals to spend their money on election ads. And then in 2014, the Supreme Court ruled in the Hobby Lobby case that corporations had religious liberty under a federal statute and uh, exempted the chain of craft stores from a legal requirement that they cover birth control in employee health plans. And these cases raised the question in my mind, which was, how did corporations win our most fundamental rights, like political freedom and religious freedom? Um, we think of those rights as being accorded to individuals. And so I wanted to look into the history of how corporations won those same rights as people. And what I found was really surprising. It turns out that there's been a 200-year effort by business corporations to win equal rights under the Constitution. And I guess as a starting point, and, and I often have engaged in this discussion when we talk about lobbying and you know, when you think of a lobbyist, people think of some, you know, guy in a in a nice suit, or, or you know, a woman in a you know a, a a Brooks Brothers suit and you know very expensive clothes. And I explained to people I, I used to work with lobbyists when I was in, in law school, and the first lobbyist I worked for was a nun. And and I mentioned <laughs> that example because. You know, corporations, you know, when we think of corporations, you know, we think of Fortune 500, we think of boardrooms, Gordon Gecko, greed is good, but but corporations aren't that simple, are they? No, there's so many different kinds of corporations, and one thing I find in my, in my book, although it focuses primarily on business corporations and how business corporations want rights, um, the Supreme Court has not often distinguished among different kinds of corporations. And therefore, it has had cases where it has ruled in favor of expansive constitutional protections for educational corporations or nonprofit corporations like the NAACP. And then later, those same cases are used as precedent to expand the rights of business corporations. 
So uh, it's true the court is not often differentiated among these different kinds of corporations, um, but really they should because they do represent different kinds of entities and serve different kinds of roles in society. And 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 that and different types of corporations have been pivotal in some of the seminal cases, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I guess I we might as well start at the beginning. You know, were corporations included in the original Bill of Rights? No, corporations were not included in the original Bill of Rights, and there's no evidence that the framers of the Constitution ever intended the Bill of Rights to protect corporations. Uh, in fact, it doesn't appear that the framers ever considered the issue one way or another. In part, that's because at the time of the founding, there were only less than half, less than a dozen of what we might identify as common business corporations at the time. They just weren't very uh, frequent in the colonial era. Uh, however, the corporate form became very popular in early America, and by, the, by 1800, there were over 300 corporations formed in America, and corporations became uh, active participants in the economy and also in the courts. And uh, it didn't take long, but uh, one of those early corporations found its way to the to the Supreme Court, and in 1809, the Supreme Court heard the very first uh, case on the constitutional rights of corporations, a full half century before the first similar cases on the rights of African Americans or women in the Supreme Court. Interesting point. And what was the result? Well, that case was called Bank of the United States versus DeVoe, and it's one of the neglected landmarks of American constitutional law. It's not covered in any of the constitutional law textbooks used in law schools today, and rarely even mentioned in many of the standard histories of uh, the Supreme Court in early America. But that case held that corporations had the right to sue in federal court under Article Three of the Constitution, uh, under a provision that guarantees the right to sue in federal court for citizens. Um, but nonetheless, even though the text only referred to citizens and not corporations, um, the Supreme Court, in a decision by legendary Chief Justice John Marshall, held that corporations were protected too. And that case really set a foundation for 200 years of corporate rights cases to come. And was that right something that flew out of uh, a property right, or was that a liberty right? Well, over the course of American history, the Supreme Court has often drawn a line between property rights for corporations and liberty rights for corporations. The court has often said that corporations need protections for their right of property. Um, government shouldn't be able to seize government's buildings or assets or papers uh, without paying just compensation or the following constitutional rules. Um, at the same time, the courts often said that corporations shouldn't have liberty rights, rights that are associated with personal conscience or political freedom or bodily integrity. But these are the rights that are reserved to individuals. However, that's a line that the Supreme Court has really ignored in recent years, extending uh, an ever-increasing share of what we might think of as liberty rights to business corporations. And, and I guess let's just, so we start with the Bill of Rights, and then the, the big um, next constitutional moment, you might say, becomes with the Civil War Amendments, including the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And and there, under the 14th Amendment, and due process as well, you see a lot of litigation by corporations saying, hey, we have rights too. 
that's right. The 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves. But in the 1880s, business corporations led by the Southern Pacific Railroad Company, one of the most powerful and influential corporations of the time, um, fought a remarkable series of what its lawyers called test cases, more than 60 of them in all, to seek expansive new rights for corporations under the 14th Amendment. Um, and indeed, uh, uh, through some nefarious uh, lawyering, uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad's lawyer, Roscoe Conkling, uh, seems to have lied to the Supreme Court to try to win these new rights for corporations. Um, but nonetheless, the court eventually did adopt that uh, reading of the 14th Amendment. And within the first uh, about half century of the 14th Amendment's existence, there were a grand total of 28 Supreme Court cases on the rights of African Americans and 312 Supreme Court cases on the rights of business corporations. Now, what's interesting, and this is where I think you know Professor Winkler excels. Tell us a little bit about Roscoe, because I've heard you talk about him now several times, and he had this notebook that he said was you know, from. He was one of the last living member of Congress, I guess, from the drafting of the Fourteenth Amendment, and he claimed it that it had. Him. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I oh, no, no, go ahead. You know, you tell us about, because Roscoe made this contention that he had the special sauce, so to speak, on the 14th Amendment, and that it included corporations. That's right. The Southern Pacific Railroad hired a dream team of lawyers led by Roscoe Conkling, and his name is not very familiar to Americans today, but at the time was one of the most illustrious men in American politics. He was a leader of the Republican Party in Congress in the 1870s and 18, uh, early 1880s, um, and he had even been nominated and confirmed to be on the Supreme Court himself. He turned down the seat after uh, winning a confirmation vote, being the, becoming the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after winning confirmation. Um, he was simply making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads, Bennett, and, uh, and he had to stay and fight. And indeed, he went to the Supreme Court and he told the justices, who viewed him as a peer, uh, that uh, the framers of the 14th Amendment had written that also to protect business corporations, not just the f newly freed slaves. Um, and Conkling uh, did have some special sauce. He was the last surviving member of the drafting committee that had written the 14th Amendment. So when he was saying what the framers of the 14th Amendment were intending, he was testifying to his own personal intent. Um, so it was a very, very powerful argument. He even buttressed his argument with uh, a musty old journal that he claimed was a never-before-published record of the 14th Amendment drafting committee's deliberations. Uh, and and it, yet it turns out historians have gone back and looked at the journal and looked at the evidence uh, and, uh, and concluded that, as one historian memorably said, that Conkling had engaged in a, quote, deliberate brazen forgery to win new rights for corporations. And and he succeeded. So another thing, point you make about the Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad case from I believe, 1886 is that, and I'm looking at that. Trust me, I did not memorize it. Um, but it never held that corporations have have rights. Tell us how that evolved. That's how did that evolve Sorry, into yeah. that? to that becoming the standard? Well, it's really quite unexpected. The Supreme Court never issued a ruling on Roscoe Conkling's case, holding on to it for three years, and I suspect part of the reason was 
uh, his fraud was uncovered. But a couple years later, another one of the Southern Pacific Railroad's test cases gets to the Supreme Court. And the court rules in favor of the Southern Pacific Railroad, but without ruling on whether corporations have rights under the 14th Amendment. Um, this leads one justice, Justice Stephen Field, to write his own opinion complaining that the justices had failed to reach this important issue. And um, nonetheless, uh, the reporter of decisions, a clerk basically, who is in charge of publishing the Supreme Court's opinions, wrote a summary of the opinion that said that the court had held that corporations had rights under the 14th Amendment. And ever since, that case has been cited for holding that corporations uh, have 14th Amendment rights. And so despite the fact that it's nowhere in, to be found in the text, and didn't a later judge say, wait a minute, we need, we should invalidate these, this whole line of cases because it's, it's, it's based on a fraud? In uh, the 19, late 1930s and early 1940s, Justice Hugo Black uh, led a one-man charge to overturn these 14th Amendment cases, giving rights to corporations. Um, uh, and he argued that the, the original intent of the framers of the 14th Amendment was to protect the rights of people, not the rights of business corporations. Um, but Black's effort really never caught on, and even though the, rights, the 14th Amendment rights of corporations are based on a lie uh, and a faulty headnote, nonetheless, the court continues to adhere to that position, um, that corporations do have rights under the 14th Amendment. And indeed, we might think about it in this way that the 14th Amendment due process and equal protection clauses have become some of, if not the most important provisions in the Constitution today. And the first cases that were really breathed life into those provisions were brought by business corporations. And it's in, you know, actually, just a footnote, I as worked as a summer associate at a law firm in D.C., and the managing partner had Hugo Black's old house in Old Town Alexandria, a very beautiful home. So he um, he may not have prevailed in that, but he did well in real estate, I must say. But <laughs> so mm -hmm. moving forward, um, we have the Lochner Court, which coincidentally we're, we're taping this on Tuesday the seventeenth, and today is the anniversary of Lochner. What explain Lochner and why it's significant? Lochner versus New York was a very important case where the Supreme Court struck down a New York law setting the maximum number of hours a baker could work uh, on a given week. Uh, and uh, the court said that that law I interfered with the freedom of contract, that the baker should be allowed to s agree to work uh, more than the maximum number of hours uh, provided for by law uh, if he or she wanted to. And, and that case reflected um, uh, a larger period in the court's history. It came to be the name of a period in the court's history lasting roughly from 1890 to 1937 when the Supreme Court became notorious for reading the Constitution very broadly to protect business corporations. The 14th Amendment and protecting business corporations' rights under that is one element, uh, important element, of the Lochner-era jurisprudence. At that same time, however, the Supreme Court refused to read the 14th Amendment broadly to protect the rights of African Americans, and in cases like Plessy against Ferguson, upheld Jim Crow laws. So the Lochner era really is short for a period in the court's history when it broadly read the Constitution to protect business corporations, but narrowly read the, con the Constitution to protect the rights of minorities.
And it was restricting, basically, you have this movement of the need to regulate labor markets and other areas, and, and the Lochner Court was really stalling what would eventually become the regressive era and the New Deal. That's right. I think the court was adhering to an old order and was having difficulty keeping the Constitution up to date with um, industrialization uh, and was approaching things as, as if we were still farmers back on the farm uh, when we had become part of an industrial society. Uh, and it put a lot of pressure on the courts. Uh, and what, what it did lead to was corporations uh, flooding the courts with constitutional cases. In the Lochner era, uh, corporations brought a number of different kinds of constitutional claims challenging any number of different kinds of regulations. Um, and uh, the court was so inundated that it was actually the Lochner Court that was a pro-business, uh, a famously pro-business court that imposed the first limits and boundaries on the rights of business corporations. For instance, it was the Lochner Court that first said corporations have property rights but not liberty rights. And in a couple of notable cases, the Supreme Court turned away business corporations uh, that sought constitutional rights, uh, including one notable case um, that's relevant to a case before the Supreme Court this very term, where uh, in 1907, the Supreme Court held that a corporation that was open to the public did not have a constitutional right to discriminate against customers that it didn't want. Um, that's a lesson that today's Supreme Court may not follow if it allows a Colorado baker to refuse to provide a wedding cake to a same-sex couple. And that claim is being brought as as a corporate right or as an individual right? The Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which is the case before the Supreme Court this term, uh, involving this Colorado baker that refused to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple, involves both the rights of the baker, that's gotten a lot of play, um, but it's also about the rights of the baker's corporation, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited. In fact, we call the case by its corporate name. Uh, because it's also brought in the name of a corporation. And that Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited company is one of the people whose First Amendment rights are said to be infringed by Colorado's law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And of course, if the baker wins, his bakery will win too. Uh, and it will give corporations, not just individuals, the right to discriminate against LGBT people. Well, we don't have the right to discriminate against our advertisers, so we're going to take a short break. When we come back um, after these messages, we'll have more with Adam Winkler and We the Corporations. You're listening to Cyberlon Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. AM Days 2018 comes to Las Vegas, May 16th and 17th. Register now at amdays.com. Make the most of your performance marketing with help from some of the most iconic brands, including Microsoft, Capital One, Uber, Backcountry, and many more. AM Days 2018 brings together a powerhouse of industry leaders and dealmakers to network and share insights on the latest practices and cutting-edge updates in performance marketing and more. Make plans to be in Las Vegas for our landmark 10th event. AM Days 2018 Las Vegas, May 16th and 17th. Webmaster Radio listeners can save 20% on two-day and combo passes using promo code WMR20. Register now at amdays.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, 
So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contest and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Adam Winkler. He's the author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. And Adam, before we start, just to be topical, I must ask you, are you represented by Michael Cohen by chance? (laughs) <laughs> uh, 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 for reasons of attorney-client privilege, I'm going to have to maintain the confidentiality of that information. <laughs> um, any event, I uh, just thought I'd have some fun. But um, at Mr. Cohen's expense, nonetheless. So you, you're, we're, we're back talking about We the Corporation, which has been very well received. And we, when, the reason why you were doing this book, you mentioned, was part of the, the controversial decision in Citizens United and then the follow-up with Hobby Lobby. And um, But to get to Citizens United, there's also some... You know, one thing that, when in your talk that I remember, and there is a question at some point here, uh, is that you know, the, the corporate courts have gone left and right and... And there is no clear theme in terms of how they deal with corporations, but you know, and sometimes you know, corporate rights are good because they protect groups like the NAACP, and maybe sometimes they go too far if you're allowing unlimited campaign contributions in Citizens United. And, and so, how? And then you know, some of the plaintiffs who've allowed some of the expanded rights that exist for corporations today aren't GM and you know Chrysler, but Ralph Nader. Um, t- how did how did the, some of the, these progressive cases lead to Citizens United and Hobby Lobby? Well, it's really one of the interesting things I find in the book is that um, uh, many of the foundations for Citizens United were put in place by progressive reformers that were seeking to protect not business corporations but others, and yet corporations have been able to leverage those reforms for the ends of capital. So just to provide a couple of examples, Ralph Nader um, brought a a very, very influential case to the Supreme Court in the 1970s. He was representing a group of consumers who wanted to challenge a Virginia law that prohibited pharmacies from advertising drug prices. And the consumers just wanted to be able to comparison shop, and so they challenged this law. Uh, and they didn't, uh, Nader was not representing any pharmacists, so his argument was based on the rights of the consumers uh, of the information. 
Uh, and he won that case, and the Supreme Court adopted what's been known as the listener's rights theory of the First Amendment, which said the identity of the speaker is irrelevant if the speech is valuable to the listeners. The listeners have a First Amendment right to get it. That same theory would be used in Citizens United uh, by the Supreme Court uh, to say that the identity of corporations uh, is irrelevant. If their political speech is valuable to the we the people, then it is protected under that same listeners' rights theory that Ralph Nader first brought to the Supreme Court. So in fundamental respects, Ralph Nader is one of the reasons we have Citizens United. Well, and as you know, I have a firm belief he's he's responsible for Citizens United in more ways than one since you know, his role in the 2000 election is how we got Samuel Alito and uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, that's very possible. Although both of them were appointed uh, after the 2004 election, so there was at least an interim time where uh, where Nader's uh, foolish run for the presidency could have been corrected. But but you're right. Maybe in more ways than one, Ralph Nader has given us uh, Citizens United. So okay, I got I got my job in at Nader. That was on my list. But <laughs> any event, um, and so we we have, for example, the NAACP case. You know. How important is it for corporations to have free speech? Because that's at the center of Citizens United. Well, that's right. Um, in the 1950s, even Thurgood Marshall argued for the rights of corporations, arguing in a case involving the NAACP that corporations had the right of freedom of association. And the NAACP, which was formed as a corporation, had a right not to reveal its membership list. Um, the Supreme Court sided with the NAACP uh, and recognized that corporations, uh, at least nonprofit corporations, had a right of freedom of association. But that case, even though it was restricted to nonprofit corporations, would be used by business corporations later to argue for their own rights. Uh, and in the 1930s, it was newspaper companies, newspaper corporations like the Louisiana newspapers that took on Huey Long um, and his efforts to censor the press. Uh, that one important freedom of the press cases. Um, again, showing how corporate rights have often been pursuing liberal ends. And in fact, many uh, people on the left are very celebratory of the movie The Post, which is out currently or out recently. Uh, but that movie really is a movie about The Washington Post, a business corporation seeking and asserting its constitutional rights. Very importantly, yes. And, uh, and a landmark case in, in press freedom. And you, your family didn't produce that, did it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Just curious. But um, so it, it seems that so much of our debate in this area centers from Citizens United. So why don't you take us to how this case came about and then how it got re-argued? Well, this is a very interesting case, not just for its impact, but also for the very litigation that led up to it. I mean, in some ways, it was a case that should never have happened. Um, when uh, the Citizens United organization first planned to bring this lawsuit, they had trouble even finding a lawyer uh, who would represent them because uh, most of the big-name lawyers didn't want to have anything to do with the case. They thought it was a sure loser, that Citizens United had no chance to win. And, um, and Citizens United uh, but, is not a big organization. I was on a panel with them. You know, there's some small, small right-wing outfit, and uh, I was surprised. You guys are the people behind this this major case. It's kind of like Mr. Lincoln talking to Harriet Beecher Stowe. Oh, you're the one who caused all this trouble. 
<laughs> there is a way in which that's right. Citizens United was just a small little outfit that was just sort of a hard-hitting political advocacy group. And the truth is, Citizens United always had the right to take whatever speech ads it wanted to take. Um, the difference was is that in they made this one movie about Hillary Clinton that uh, touched off the Citizens United case, and they used corporate money to finance it. That is to say, contributions from business corporations to finance it. That meant that the law that prohibited business money being used to finance elections ad, election ads kicked in. And so they were prohibited from showing this movie financed with corporate money about Hillary Clinton. And so they challenged that law in court. And like I say, they had trouble finding a lawyer at first. And then um, uh, uh, when the case eventually did make it to the Supreme Court, um, uh, they decided to switch their lawyers and abandon the lawyer that had been sort of the true believer who had really helped them from the earliest days uh, in favor of one of the elite Supreme Court lawyers, Ted Olson. Um, and, and it turns that Ted Olson went to the Supreme Court and, and really argued this case in a very narrow way, that it wouldn't be a broad landmark decision. But uh, several of the justices didn't like that uh, and pushed back and uh, and eventually ordered the case to be re-argued to focus on big questions of constitutional law, like could corporations ever be prevent, prevented from spending money on elections? So let me, uh, and, and let me stop you there, that then. bigger issue that really... Now, yeah. Uh, on that point, so there's a debate, or often, maybe not a debate, there's an often touchstone that in what the role of the judges should be is to decide the law, not to be advocates, not to legislate from the bench. And what was presented to the court and what was argued to the court was, would you describe a conservative justice in the traditional sense, uh, with the decision to reopen the debate and expand the debate, would that be consistent with conservative jurisprudence? Probably not. You know, sometimes the charge of judicial activism is really just a label that we use to describe judicial rulings we don't like. But That's there were true. elements of Citizens United. There were elements of Citizens United that really warranted the charge of judicial activism. Um, Ted Olson and Citizens United argued very narrowly. They didn't argue that um, Congress couldn't ban corporate money in elections. They were looking for a small exception to the law for their little organization. Um, and it was the justices themselves who didn't like that and pushed the decision to be on broader issues. And in fact, the court was about to issue an opinion, uh, a big landmark opinion outlawing, corporate outlawing restrictions on corporate money in elections when the issue hadn't even been argued by the advocates or briefed. Uh, and uh, the court uh, thought twice of it and eventually ordered the case for re-argument set for re-argument so it could get the kind of briefing on those big question issues that it was interested in. But again, it was a case that was decided without a big record below uh, and decided on questions that the lower courts had not ruled on. And, and just by way of background, Citizens United stemmed from the McCain-Feingold campaign finance laws that passed, uh, I'm guess during the Clinton era, right? I could be wrong. And um, No, they were passed in the first year of the Bush administration. The Bush, okay. The second Bush and, administration. Yeah. And I, I, to be honest, the provision at issue I thought was flawed from the start, and and I thought there was you know Citizens United should have won, and that provision should simply have been struck down. You know, but there was a provision that restricted your ability to publish certain items within a certain period before the election, and I, I just saw that as a prior restraint on speech that I I just didn't think that was 
going to be upheld. And and in hindsight, I, I, you know that's what that was the opening that led to this much broader decision that totally upended all campaign finance regulation. Well, and in fairness, though, Bennett, um, the, I mean, that when after McCain-Feingold was enacted, a uh, constitutional challenge went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld those very provisions that it later, only eight years later, would overturn in Citizens United. So in 2002, the Supreme Court ruled on those issues and said that the law was constitutionally permissible. So it really, things changed when they, uh, with the appointment of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts to replace William Rehnquist and Associate Justice Sam Alito to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. When those two votes changed, the court's attitude on campaign finance law changed too. And we saw that provisions that had been upheld, like the provisions involved in Citizens United, uh, were now on the chopping block. And, and, and so Citizens United comes down and basically says, you know, there's no restrictions on corporations freedom of speech and speech is defined as money you can give unlimited amounts of money and there's a famous moment where president obama giving a state of the union address in which supreme court justices are in the front row criticizes this opinion and justice olito who clearly was the one driving the re-argument and the decision mouth you're wrong and, uh, That's right. It was uh, quite a notable moment in, uh, uh, in confrontation between the executive branch and the judicial branch, uh, really one we hadn't really seen too many times before. Um, and some people were outraged by it. But in some ways, um, uh, uh, President Obama has been proven correct uh, that he predicted that it would lead to foreign money flowing into American elections. And geez, what do we have except an American election that uh, uh, was foiled by foreign money? Did you think if Citizens United had been decided differently, w would we have been able to prevent what happened in 2016? Oh, who knows? I, I, maybe not. Maybe uh, it's hard to say. Um, I think, though, that we have seen that uh, Citizens United has led to a lot more money flowing into the political process. Interestingly, though, Ben, it hasn't been primarily from business corporations. That What we've seen is that it's really unleashed more spending by individuals than it has by business corporations. Interesting. People like Sheldon Adelson taking out lots of ads and spending $90 million to try to elect Mitt Romney, for instance. Um, I think it's probably only a matter of time before more corporations become more involved, and we're likely to see more corporations get involved in local level uh, elections rather than at the presidential level. Uh, there's already so much money in presidential elections, big companies probably can't have a huge influence on it. Right. Uh, but, you know, local elections and for state Supreme Court justices, that's an area where business corporations can get a lot of bang for their buck. That's money well spent. Now, what is your view of Citizens United? Was it correctly decided? Well, I think Citizens United was incorrectly decided, although you are absolutely right that the law at issue did have some constitutional problems. Some of those constitutional problems stem from the fact that the Supreme Court has made it very difficult for Congress to enact campaign finance laws. Um, and not given Congress much leeway. I think that there is a long hundred year tradition of restricting corporate money in elections. It stems, I trace the, the history of those first campaign finance laws restricting corporate money in elections back to Teddy Roosevelt and his effort to break up the trusts. But it turns out that Roosevelt was in the pocket of big corporations 
and was one of the first presidents whose campaigns were financed almost entirely by business corporations. Um, and that led to a big scandal and some of the first campaign finance laws. And ever since then, we've had a special rule that corporate money doesn't belong in elections. Um, but, but that rule has come undone in recent years. Uh, and uh, not just, it's not just Citizens United. 30 years before Citizens United, Lewis Powell wrote an important opinion for the Supreme Court in a case known as the Bellotti case. Uh, that said that corporations have political speech rights um, even before Citizens United. And, you know, because if you take away corporate speech rights, then what about union rights? You know, they're a, a, you know, a corporate entity to an extent. You know, just as the left criticizes, you know, um, corporate spending, the right criticizes union spending in elections. And indeed, if corporations have no constitutional rights, uh, then uh, media corporations have no constitutional rights. And Fox News or CNN or the uh, New York Times could all uh, be subject to censorship without having any constitutional protections. So uh, I think the idea that uh, corporations should have no rights is probably a step too far. Right. And so how would you have decided Citizens United then? Well, I would have uh, upheld the law in Citizens United, frankly. I would have th I think that the, the law in Citizens United uh, did reflect this long hundred-year compromise that we've made, that corporate money doesn't belong in, in, in elections. Uh, I also think that uh, there were other ways to go about Citizens United. Could have You could have gone easily the way Ted Olson argued the case originally, which was uh, for the court to create a narrow exception for this particular uh, movie uh, for a, a documentary that really wasn't the kind of election ad that Congress was thinking about when it wrote the, the campaign finance law. So there could have been a narrow approach to doing it, one that respected the long history and tradition of treating corporations differently. One of the things I found, Bennett, that's interesting um, uh, is because more important than my views about Citizens United are what happens in the courts. And what I found is that a hundred years before Citizens United, there were court cases challenging uh, early campaign finance laws restricting corporate money in elections. And back then, uh, it was a series of cases brought by liquor companies who were challenging uh, law these corporate money bans in the run-up to prohibition. They wanted to take out ads uh, to prevent prohibition. Uh, and uh, yet the courts back then, 100 years ago, universally upheld these campaign finance restrictions, saying that the right to influence politics belongs to natural persons, not artificial persons. And it's it's interesting, and um, you in your other book, Gunfight, you do a great job of you know bringing back you know, what had been the rule you know a hundred years ago. For example, your discussion of the OK gunfight at the OK Corral, when you know, we have this image of this wholly armed wild wild west, and you you explain how gun control was very prevalent in the wild wild west. And in fact, what was remarkable about the gunfight at the OK Corral was just it was only three people shot or something like that. And then that was considered a lot. That's right. I mean, we have this image of the Wild West uh, about these gunslingers coming through town uh, with their guns on their hips and their uh, uh, ammunition strapped across their chest. But in truth, uh, the Wild West towns, the frontier towns, places like Dodge City and 
um, uh, Tombstone, Arizona. These places had the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. Um, they prohibited people from carrying guns on the streets uh, of their towns. And if you went into a Wild West town, you had to check your gun. Uh, with the local sheriff, the way someone in, might check a re- uh, coat in a restaurant on the East Coast in the wintertime. And you get a little the token that you could uh, use to claim your gun on your way out of town. Uh, and, and indeed, like you say, the shootout at the OK Corral was well known at the time, but it was a, a unique um, uh, experience. Um, it made national news that three people were killed, uh, whereas today three people are killed in a shooting and it might not even make the news. No, entirely not. Yeah. It's it's just it's a different um, reality we live in now. But just our, yeah. You know, what one thing I think that you do very well is bringing to life, you know, what had happened in the past, and how it, it may be very different than how we are imagining it today. And I think that's something you've done very useful and um, and vividly. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be finishing up with. Adam Winkler. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlawn Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for the 2018 International Web Award Competition. Web Marketing Award winners receive an image plaque, certificate of achievement, higher visibility for your company, valuable feedback from our expert judges, and links to your site from the highly ranked Web Award site. Visit www.webaward.org to nominate your company, site, or organization. Deadline for entries is May 31st, 2018. Go to www.webaward.org and sign up today. St. Jude continues to advance by increasing cure rates in childhood cancer. And donors are important to us because you get the feeling that you have a team behind you. When it comes to research and advancements, there are some things that only we can do because we have the resources and we have the focus. And so if St. Jude doesn't do it, who will? St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with uh, Adam Winkler. He's a professor at law at the University of California at Los Angeles Law School, uh, one of the nation's top law schools. And he is the author of We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, and um, speaking of Los Angeles, Professor Winkler, you will be speaking at the Los Angeles Times Book Fair. And uh, you want to tell us about that? 
Yeah, it's going to be this Saturday, the L.A. Times Festival of Books. It's going to be held down at the campus uh, at USC, um, where I used to be a professor back in the day. So uh, no USC-UCLA rivalry for me. Uh, that's going to be Saturday. My panel is called The Endangered Constitution, question mark. And I'll be with uh, the great uh, Southern California um, uh, native Erwin Chemerinsky um, and uh, some others talking at, uh, I think it was 3.30 p.m. on Saturday at the L.A. You know, and for for those who are unfamiliar with Professor Chemerinsky, uh, he is a legend among lawyers. Partly, I mean, he's definitely had a distinguished career, but for most lawyers, what they remember most about uh, Profe- you know, Professor Chemerinsky is his constitutional law lectures for bar review where he gives a three-hour lecture without notes it, it's just unfathomable and uh, and, and an engaging lecture too and so uh you know he is legion among lawyers and so you're in good company there now um we we've talked a little bit about the bakery case that's coming up and uh but I, before we get there it, lead us through the Hobby Lobby case and, and how did Citizens United flow into the Hobby Lobby? Well, just a few years after the Citizens United case, the court in the Hobby Lobby case held that corporations had religious freedom under a federal statute and entitled the chain of craft stores to an exemption from a legal requirement that they include birth control in employee health plans. And the court in that case uh, uh, again, expanded the rights of corporations, rec- recognizing corporations to have uh, some of the same rights as individuals. Indeed, uh, the court in the Hobby Lobby case kind of ignored the separate legal personhood of the corporation and said that the reason why Hobby Lobby was entitled to this exemption was because the law requiring birth control coverage burdened the religious liberty rights of the Green family, the family that owns Hobby Lobby. Uh, in some ways, as I talk about in my book, this is really uh, violates the principle of corporate personhood in corporate law, which says that a corporation and its members, the people who form it, finance it, or who run it, are wholly separate people in the eyes of the law with their own legal rights and their own legal duties. Uh, and that's why if you slip and fall at Starbucks, you have to sue the company. You can't sue the individual shareholders uh, because they are separate legal persons. And the Supreme Court pretty much ignored that principle in the Hobby Lobby case. It is an it is an odd distinction, and but so does that decision dictate what will happen with the bakery case? It doesn't dictate the bakery case's outcome per se, because uh, the Hobby Lobby case was brought under a federal statute asserting religious freedom, and the bakery, although the baker is religiously motivated. Um, uh, is focusing their their argument on the First Amendment freedom of expression, saying that it's unconstitutional under the First Amendment to force them to um, uh, make a wedding cake uh, for a same-sex couple. Um, so it doesn't uh, dictate the outcome, although I think we can suggest that uh, the same justices who in, were in the majority in Hobby Lobby um, seem likely to rule in favor of the baker in this case for some of the same reasons. And w- what is your thought on the case? I mean, what, where is that? I think the bakery. I think the bakery case is a very troubling case, um, and, and uh, it was very interesting in the oral argument in the bakery case. 
all of the lawyers who appeared, including the lawyers for the government and for the baker who were arguing uh, in, in favor of uh, these First Amendment, broad First Amendment ruling, all of them agreed that uh, the baker would not have a right to discriminate on the basis of race in selling a wedding cake. Uh, they thought that was unthinkable. Well, the interesting thing is if you go back to the 1960s, it wasn't unthinkable back then, and there were very similar kinds of legal challenges brought to the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and, and businesses claimed uh, a constitutional right uh, to continue to discriminate, not to serve customers they didn't want. Uh, and the claims were slightly different in that they weren't about a custom-made wedding cake, uh, but they were about businesses having the right to refuse customers based on the constitutional rights of their owners. And the courts turned down those cases consistently. And the reason why it's unthinkable now is because the courts drew a firm line against discrimination back then. Uh, if the court allows LGBT discrimination to occur now, it won't be unthinkable in 10 or 20 years that businesses would discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Precisely. And that's that's the troubling aspect of it. And, we, and also, uh, the religious freedom is not inhibiting their religious freedom. It's inhibiting their ability to um, project their religious views on others. That's right, and to deny access to services by people who otherwise are entitled to uh, full access to what public uh, businesses and public accommodations have to offer. Um, we don't allow businesses to pick and choose their customers on the basis of irrelevant characteristics like race and sex. Uh, Colorado has, like many states, decided that sexual orientation is similarly irrelevant, um, and, and that's a principle the court should respect and recognize We'll see what happens. Uh, based on the oral argument, it did look like the, there was a good chance the baker would win that case. Now, we're hearing a lot of reports that ever since the election of President Trump, law school admissions are, are up. People are now curious about the law. And what what is it like to be a law professor in this, this crazy era that we're in? Donald Trump really has changed the dynamics of law schools in a couple of ways. Number one, law schools were really struggling for the last few years. Ever since the downturn in 2008, the law schools have struggled with admissions, and the number of applicants was down significantly. But the number of applicants has significantly upticked uh, in the last year, uh, thanks to Donald Trump. Um, and you also see it among the students. The students are much more politically active and politically engaged than they ever were before. And they don't want to hear just another law professor come give a lunch talk. What they want is people to come and tell them what they can do to get involved and to make a difference. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, real heart of a lawyer that uh, a law professor like me loves to see. It definitely must be a very invigorating time. Now, we only have two minutes left. If people want to find out more about you and your book, where should they go and maybe how should they follow you? Sure. Well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Adam Winkler. You can also uh, look up that we have a nice webpage set up through the UCLA Law website uh, on We the Corporations with helpful links to reviews and uh, some videos of some talks I've given on the book. Uh, and, of course, it's available uh, at independent booksellers and Amazon uh, and any place you can buy best-selling books, I guess. Well, great. Well, Professor Winkler, it's always a pleasure. You're, you're engaging in speaker and your contribution to the field here where We the Corporations is, is a great, greatly appreciated. And um, thanks for coming on the show.
Always a pleasure to do it, Bennett. Thank you so much for having me. And one small bit of trivia, President Winkler, excuse me, President Winkler, maybe someday, um, Professor Winkler's wife is a Rhode Islander, and as, as I am myself, and when this show airs, it will be the anniversary of the longest baseball game in American history played by the Pawtucket Red Sox in 1981. They played to four in the morning and 32 innings, and then they came back the next a week later to do the 33rd inning. So, might have been a bit of trivia. So, any event. And while Judge Winkler may never have appeared before Judge Harry T. Stone, well, many of us have watched him over the years on Night Court, and uh, we say, um, sadly, the court is adjourned, and um, we hope you're well. Harry Anderson, rest in peace. Thank you for joining us. It's been. Um, we'll have information on Professor Winkler on our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Join us next week. We'll have a discussion about imprisoned blogger Rafe Bowie and the campaign to get his release. He's been in jail in Egypt for a number of years now. So we'll be talking about that next week. Everyone have a great week. See you next week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.